Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With this episode of the program, we inaugurate a new series, Our Favorite Books. This is one of mine. In the Basque History of the World, published in 1999, Mark Kurlansky writes, They are a mythical people, almost an imagined people. Straddling a small corner of Spain and France in a land that is marked on no maps except their own, the Basques are a puzzling contradiction. They are Europe's oldest nation without ever having been a country. No one has ever been able to determine their origins. Even the Basque language, the most ancient in Europe, is related to none other on earth. For centuries, their influence has been felt in nearly every realm, from religion to sports to commerce. So we bring on the author, Mark Kurlansky, who's author of 29 books and the latest uh, a very interesting book called Paper, Paging Through History. And we'll uh, talk about, about that at the end of our conversation today. Mark Kurlansky, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Uh, so uh, I've been interested in, in Basque people for a long time. Uh, and uh, like I say, this is, became one of my favorite books when I discovered this because I was able to learn all about the Basque people. Uh, how did you discover everything Basque? Well, uh, originally, uh, this was when Franco was still in power, and I mean, here was this last of the 1930s fascists, and you would have rallies, and people would give fascist salutes, and the whole thing was a complete throwback to the 1930s, and nobody was writing about it anymore, and so I convinced a bunch of newspapers that I would uh, write about it, and um, I got there, and... uh, Nobody was really doing much of anything except uh, debating when he was going to die, which seemed overdue. Um, and then the Basques uh, assassinated his uh, chosen successor, uh, Carablanca, which probably changed uh, Spanish history. And uh, so I got the idea that things were uh, stirring a little more in Basque country, so I went up there, and they, they were, but also... You know, it was just the most beautiful place I'd ever seen, and the the culture was was so rich um, and a bit mysterious at the time because it was all being suppressed by Franco. So it was illegal to speak the Basque language, so I never heard it. Uh, always wondered what it sounded like. Um, of course, now you hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah. So do you think it's becoming more popular? Or, or at least well, oh, well known. It, it, it's become the lingua franca. It, it is the mm. language of past country again. It's yeah. what all the oh. kids speak. And, oh, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's the leading language. It's, it's mm. in all the schools. On the Spanish side, the, um, uh, ironically, the, you know, the French are actually more uh, repressive of past culture than the Spanish are. Um, just repressive of cultures in general, other than the French culture. Um so they don't have uh, they don't have autonomous government like the, on the Spanish side. So they don't have their own schools. Um, so it's much more difficult there. But on the on the Spanish side, uh, everybody speaks Basque. Mm. Or every you know uh, everybody born after Franco times. There there are so many fascinating things about the Basque. Let me start with language. Uh, the most ancient in Europe and related to no other language. Is that true? Well. You know, it probably was related to other languages. I think I think what you should say is related to no surviving language. Okay, no current language, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, my guess is that, I mean, there, there's no such thing really as an orphan language. You know, it comes from somewhere. And my guess is that there was a whole family of languages and uh, that this is the only one that survived. 
and uh, the, the Basque people, they're, they're organized around the language, isn't it? There's no word for Basque, only Basque speaker. Is that true? Uskildun, Basque mm-hmm. speaker is how you say Basque in, in the Basque language. Um, uh, the Basque identity is very much about uh, the language. A Basque is someone who speaks Basque. It gets very complicated because, of course, there are some Basques who don't speak Basque, especially the generation that grew up under Franco. Um, and, you know, there are people in Basque country who are not ethnically Basque. Uh, but interestingly, if they speak Basque, that's good enough. Oh, oh, really? Uh, so tell me, yeah. tell me about the the language. It's an agglutinating language. I don't want to get too, <laughs> too technical. Well, I don't know anything beyond that. Um, I'm fascinated yeah, by languages. It, it really agglutinates, man. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what does you know, that mean? You, you have a root word, and you you, you tack uh, suffixes onto it that are prepositions and objects and adjectives, and so you have some very very long words. Hmm. And, uh, and then one of the really difficult thing about learning Basque is that the the word order forces you to think in a completely different way. Oh, really? Um, so it changes your thinking, the way you think. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's just in a you know it's in a different word order, and hmm. uh, I'm not very good at it, so I find myself sort of composing my sentence in my head before I say it, but that's hmm. not really how it goes when you speak it. You say you're not very yeah, good at it, but, but well. you, you've at least made an attempt. Uh, do, do the Basque people appreciate that? If you, if you, uh, they if you do. try? They do. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, um, most Basque people are fluent in French and Spanish, which I am also. And so usually after uh, a minute of my awkward Basque, they gladly switch to French or Spanish. And hmm. I'll take it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, directly. Another, another interesting fact... Um, known as, as known as ever been able to determine their origins, origins are mysterious. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I wonder how political that is because you know all of the uh, treatises on the origins of Basques, and they get pretty wild. You know that they were Berbers and that they were um, the the lost tribe, and they were from Atlantis and all these things, but. These were all studies commissioned by Spanish or French governments, and it seems to me they were pretty eager to uh, refute the obvious, which is that they were from where they are now. Uh, Right. Because they come from there. Right, right. Um, I I guess if you look at DNA, uh, are we able to connect up? Uh, through through DNA to, uh, with with other yeah and, and blood type also there's a, mm-hmm. there's a uh, type A uh, not a um, see there's a there's a Basque blood type um, and you know there's a lot of evidence that there are people in that area that are Romanized Basques you know like the Gascons uh, Gascons which is a, the the next region over in France. Um, they're very much like Basque. They even wear berets, and uh, uh, it seems very similar in a lot of ways. Except they don't speak Basque; they speak, uh, you know, a, a Latin language, a dialect of French. Um, and you know, it seems quite likely, especially with accounts of you know Romans and Visigoths encountering them, that they occupied a much bigger area than they do now. And a lot of those people in those areas 
we're also Basque, but have uh, kind of lost the Basque culture or the language, which is the mainstay of the Basque culture. Mm. And they are, they're an interesting case of a people that don't have a nation, right? They don't have a nation yeah, state. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, that's, it, it's a very interesting thing, and it gets into the question of, uh, you know, what is a nation? What is a country? Um, I mean, they have their own government and their own tradition of governing, um, which was fairly democratic, uh, no monarchies except in Namara, um, and uh, very distinctly different from the other peoples around them. And um, uh, they really, what they wanted and what they got until the 19th century Carlist Wars was a certain degree of commercial independence so that they were not within the Spanish or the French custom zone. Um, and they were very happy with that. Uh, they worked a lot in South America, and they were the primary purveyors of South American goods uh, to Europe, corn and turkey and chocolate and chili peppers and um uh, you could bring things into uh, Basque ports without paying European duties on them, and then Basque could trade them in Europe uh, at advantageous prices because they were duty-free. Uh, and that was basically, you know, what they wanted. <laughs> you know, I, I've always asked this question, what do the Basques want? Um, and it always reminds me, because I'm Jewish, and you know they they always say if you if you put two Jews in a room you'll get three different opinions. <laughs> um, Basques are kind of like that, so you can't really neatly say what the Basques want. Different Basques want different things, mm. uh, but that's the primary root of what they want, um, and uh, the historic basis of what they want. Um, and the European Union offers tremendous possibilities for this. I mean, they could leave Spain and become an EU country um, and, you know, be um, be their own country, but be part of this uh, larger thing. They wouldn't have to print money. And, um, you know, this is why most Basques are supportive of the EU. One, one thing you write, uh, the singular remarkable fact about the Basques is that they still exist. They have, you know, when many other peoples were, quote-unquote, assimilated or, you know, into the, the broader culture, they, they yeah, remain. Yeah, it's just extraordinary the way they keep going on. And, you know, I thought, when I was writing about Spain in the time of Franco, I thought, well, you know, eventually this guy's going to be gone and this whole repressive system is going to be gone. And then the Basques won't have anything motivating them, and that'll be the end of the Basques. And, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. Why I remember you... when, I, when I, I, I covered what was called the transition, the period after the death of Franco when the new Spain was being set up, and then I disappeared to Latin America for a while, a few years, and when I went back to Basque country, I was absolutely amazed at how strong Basque culture had become. Hmm. What, why do you think, why do you think the, the culture is so tenacious? Um, well, tenacious, 
you know, is a, is a word that's just often used <laughs> to describe bass mm. in a lot of ways. Um, they just want to be who they are, you know, and they, there's some disagreement about how you define that. Uh, language is, is one thing that everybody pretty much agrees on. Um, you know, so they need their own schools and, uh, you know, their own culture and, um, uh, um, they just, uh, they want to be Basques. They love being Basques. Mm. <laughs> so I, I was just, uh, this weekend I was in Chicago for, it was a, a book festival, Printer's Row Festival. And, uh, you know, some bass came up to me. Bass come up to me wherever I go. That's <laughs> very nice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what did we talk about? We talked about how, you know, the ace starting pitcher for the Chicago Cubs has a Basque name. Uh, Where is he from? What do we know about him? <laughs> what, what is his name? Arietta. Oh, Arietta. Oh, that's a Basque name. Okay. Yeah. That's a Basque name. Yes, it's the yeah. name of a Basque town. Yeah. And actually, when you think about it, he's kind of Basque-looking. Mm-hmm. But I've never investigated this, so yeah. I don't really know. I, There's many people in baseball with Basque names, but they don't look Basque, you know, because they're black. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's, you know, Echeverias and Renterias and uh, a lot of Basque names because of all of the Basque. There's a lot of Basque names in Latin America. Yeah, uh, because of an interaction with, with Basque people, I guess, and then they... Right, right. Sp- I, mean, I, I wrote a book about um, a town in the Dominican Republic that produced a lot of baseball players, and um, the mayor of the town was named Echeverria, which is the most common Basque name because it was mm-hmm. the name given to all orphans. Mm-hmm. And one of the leading baseball trainers was named Aguirre, which is another typical Basque name. And, you know, these people had no particular Basque identity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the names just went on. Why, why were why were orphans given the name of Echeverria? Um, well, Echeverria means uh, uh, new house. Eche is house. Berry is uh, new, so it's new house. Could you, home. could you talk about that? It's, that's a very interesting aspect of Basque culture. Everybody is everyone is part of a house. And this is a, the actual yes, physical so house, it, even it, if it doesn't Achea, exist anymore. Yeah. House is a very important word and a very important idea in Basque culture. And um, uh, houses have names. And uh, it's uh, uh, the root of identity. When, when Basque meets another Basque, often they won't, rather than asking what town they're from or something like that, they'll ask uh, what house they come from. Hmm. This could be a house that's still there, or it could be a house that's no longer there, but they're still from that house, uh, is it my understanding? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, sometimes the house hasn't been there for centuries, mm-hmm. and other times it's still there. Uh, so it's kind of similar to a clan, I guess? It's, you're, you're part of a house. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. I mean, one of the most famous modern uh, um, Basque poems by Gabriel Oreste uh, begins, I will defend my house. Yeah. No, there, there's, uh, there, there have been times of uh, reflowering of Basque literature, right? And there, there is... There's a, this, you know, this may be one of them. Yeah, oh, oh this, a lot of Basque really? literature. Okay. There's a lot of Basque literature coming out now. In fact, 
you know, there may be more Basque literature being read now than at any time in their history. For a very long time, you know, there wasn't much literature in the Basque language. They used uh, French and Spanish. I mean, the, the, the oldest writing in the Basque language that we've ever found is from the 15th century or 1500s. And, uh, you know, at that time, you know, Basques were a very old culture that had been around for thousands of years. Um, but it's, uh, it really started in the Basque literature started in the 19th century and through the 1930s till the Spanish Civil War. Uh, there was a kind of a reflowering of Basque culture, and a lot of Basque literature came out of that period. And then, of course, it was completely suppressed. And um, uh, since uh, '75, since Franco died, Basque literature has has emerged. Uh, quite a few writers, and you know, they get translated into other languages. Um, and some are uh, pretty widely read. Mm. Let's take a brief break. When we come back more with Mark Kurlansky, he is author of uh, one of my favorite books. We are inaugurating today a new series on Access Utah, our favorite books. The book in question is The Basque History of the World. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about um, Basque food. I know, uh, Mark Kurlansky, you, you you write a lot about food. Um, also about the, the Basque diaspora, if you could call it that. There, there are quite a few Basque people in the western United States. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Court McCaughey, dermatologist at the Intermountain Budge Clinic, offering services including treatment and prevention of skin cancer, dermatologic surgeries, and medical dermatology for patients of all ages. Information at 435-716-1770. back with Mark Kurlansky. One of our favorite books is The Basque History of the World, published in 1999. Uh, in that book, Mark Kurlansky writes, they are a mythical people, almost an imagined uh, people. I'd like to start this segment there. What, what do you mean by that? Almost, uh, they're mythical people, almost an imagined people. Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, there's so much mythology about them, and nobody really knows anything about them. Uh, and, um, I mean, in, in reality, they, they aren't an imagined people. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really there. And, uh, you can talk to them. I, I mean, how many people say to me, how did you get the Basques to talk to you? Uh, Basques don't have social problems. They're <laughs> willing to, to talk to you. They have this reputation for being very secretive because nobody understands their language. And people historically have always seen that as a kind of conspiracy you know, to have a secret language. But they didn't decide to make it secret. It's just nobody else understands it. Hmm. I guess one time when uh, you you write uh, very movingly about uh, some friends that you made in, in Basque Country, and then you went back and updated that in a, in a blog posting on your website, which is, by the way, markkurlansky.com. Maybe we'd have you talk a little bit about that at this point. Uh, let me pull that up here. Um, this is from uh, 2004. On the occasion of the death of your friend uh, Janine, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Perret. Okay, Perret. It's a French name. Uh, a French name, yes. Yeah. So she lived on the French side. Um, um, so tell me about the Perret uh, family, very interesting family. Well, you know, I read across this uh, because uh, a misunderstanding, actually. Um, you know, they were doing food research on a uh, dessert from... Uh, 
uh, one of the provinces of the board, uh, called in French, Gato Basque, Basquet. Um, and I had read that originally it was a bread. And so I was driving in the beautiful Nivelle Valley, past the little town of Senti, and uh, uh, there was a, a little uh, lingerie with a with a sign up that said um, Gato Basque Pan, you know, Gato Basque Bread. I thought, wow, so this must be the original Gato Basque. But actually, they were saying that they sold Gato Basque and they sold bread. But it turned out that their Gato Basque was a very ancient recipe. It was unlike any of the Gato Basques that are made today. And it had been passed down in their family secretly. Uh, see, this is the secretive side of Basques, but also the secretive side of chefs, you know. Um, uh, they would not give the recipe to anybody who wasn't in the family. And it, it was a uh, a very interesting uh, cake, not like modern cake at all. Um, and, uh, you know, these people just had tremendous pride in, in making this cake from this ancient recipe of their family. And, it, you know, this was like part of their identity. And you you write in the book about uh, the Pohei family and, uh, and others, uh, you know, during World War II, Germans or others would come in and they, you know, they, they, they'd speak the, I guess, French. But, but then as you, as you, I guess even when you would enter then you'd leave, you'd hear them speaking Basque. I guess that goes to why people, you know, kind of think that it's secretive. Well, yes, but I mean, that was during, uh, Franco times when, uh, uh, you could be arrested for speaking the Basque. Ah, so it was, okay. you know, it was Franco, not the Basque who made mm. it secret. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he he was trying to what was his purpose there? He was trying to assimilate them into the culture, destroy their culture, destroy the, I'll destroy it. He he absolutely hated the Basque hmm. um, because they were resisting. Because he he actually like most Spaniards came from a minority culture himself. He was a Gallego from Galicia, not that far away. Uh, but he absolutely hated the Basque and wanted to destroy them. Hmm. Um, <laughs> along with a lot of other people. Um, but, uh, you know, they they would speak it in their homes, but not outside. So I know people who grew up speaking Basque at home, but never speaking it once they left their home. Mm-hmm. You know, parents told kids, don't you ever speak this outside of the house, you'll get in a lot of trouble. And then after Franco died, for the first time, they discovered that all their friends and almost everybody they knew spoke Basque. <laughs> Just never <laughs> spoken to each other. Never spoken in public. Whether well, there's a right. there's a wonderful uh, photo you have in the book, uh, Jacques Perry and his I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly and his son and that would have been what Janine's uh, grandfather Jacques. Great grandfather and Gra- grandfather and grandfather. They're sitting they're sitting in front of the, the pastry shop that's been there for. For a long time, they're right. they're both they're both wearing a couple of items of Basque clothing. They're both wearing berets, and they're both wearing the the Basque uh, shoes. I can't remember what those are called. Yeah, the uh, es- espadrilles. Um, espadrilles. Yeah, Basque used to always wear espadrilles. I mean, I have photos of them working in uh, steel mills. Biscaya was a great steel center around Bilbao, and um, 
yeah, the, the workers in the steel mills were asbestos. What a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, tell me about the, uh, the uh, well, let me uh, preface this by saying I, I, uh, I knew briefly a lady who married into a Basque family, at least with a Basque name, Las Kenotegi was their name. Um, and it, uh, I, I do know there are quite a few Basque in, um, in, in the western United States. My vague understanding is that yes. many of them came over to, to herd sheep, but I, I don't know for sure. Yes, that, that, that is correct. That, um, remember the old westerns about the cattlemen and the sheepmen going to war with each other, right. and then the cattlemen won? Um, and they regretted that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, were no, there was nobody to herd sheep. And so in the, towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they, they started looking for people to herd sheep. Originally, they got Scots. Uh, because the economy was bad in Scotland, and then it got better there, and Scots weren't coming over anymore. And then they found Basques. And Basques, um, very few Basques are uh, sheep herders in the sense they are in America. Basques are farmers that would have a very diverse farm, and among the things they would have would be a bunch of sheep. You know, and they'd also grow things, and they'd have lots of different things going on. Um, So they knew something about sheep. And they recruited them, and they set up a center for them in New York City, and they'd come over by ship and land in New York, and they'd put them up in this house in Greenwich Village, and then the the sheep people would go and recruit them and take them out west. And um, incredible stories. You know, they, they had never seen so many sheep in their life and had never seen such a vast uh, country, you know, the, the entire Basque country, which is seven provinces, is about the size of New Hampshire. Um, you know, and they go out to uh, Idaho and Nevada and uh, eastern California, eastern Oregon, uh, um, eastern Washington State, um, some parts of Utah, and, um, you know, they'd be given... A hundred thousand sheep or more to move wow. around. I remember one old timer telling me that it looked like there was some good grazing on the next mountain, and so he decided he was going to drive the, the the flock over there. And other people said to him, "Really, you want to do that?" And he said, "Yeah, I think it'd be good." So he went to drive them to the next mountain, and that took weeks. <laughs> he thought he was going to have them there by sunset. <laughs> uh, they, they just had no. Uh, preparation for the vastness of the American West, mm-hmm. but uh, you know they uh, uh, they did well. Their families settled there. They're almost entirely out of sheep now. A lot of them have become very successful people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Laxalt, who is the oh, governor yes. and senator mm-hmm. of Nevada, is a Basque. And, uh, um, there are. Uh, Lots of bass in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, I'd like to talk briefly about the geography of Basque Country. You know, back to to, to where the you know the majority live. Um, it's mountainous and it's on a border. Um, I, I don't know if that had effect on their on the culture. And one thing I I don't know if you know they would have been involved in smuggling on on the border there. Constantly. Okay. <laughs> they, were, they were tremendous smugglers, and in fact. Um, I think it was Janine Toroy, uh, the, the woman who made the Gato Basques, who said to me that after 
you know, after the EU was established, so there was no longer a border between Spain and France, that uh, she missed the smuggling. You know, it used to be fun to sneak things back and forth across the border, and now you just take them and nobody would stop you. It just <laughs> ruined the whole fun of the thing. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, some of the history is very important uh, and interesting, and, and I, th- I think we, we don't realize some people in history that we've heard about are Basque. So let's start with religion. Ignatius Loyola. Yes, absolutely. Ignatius Loyola was uh, was the Basque, and uh, uh, so was uh, Francis Xavier. The, Xavier, the, the Jesuit sect, is a Basque. Uh, the Basque sect, um, and uh, um, you know, became very influential around the world. Mm. Uh, typical of the way Basques do things, the, the Jesuits had a mandate to travel around the world, uh, which is a very Basque thing. Basques really, you know, you, you think of them as an insular people, you know, they have their own culture in this small area, but they really want to get out and go around the world. That's what the Jesuits, more than uh, any other Catholic order, did. Mm. So, talking speaking of exploration, the first man apparently to circumnavigate the globe was Basque. Yes, you know, you ask people who the first man to circumnavigate the globe was, and they'll invariably say uh, Magellan. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Everybody always overlooks the fact, the well-known fact, that Magellan was killed in the Philippines. So he never made it back. Um, the guy who took over was Juan de Alcano, who was a path. Hmm. And he finished the mission and sailed into Spain. And the, the, the Basque were the second Europeans after the Vikings in North America. I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, probably, yes. That's what um, I think, okay. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the important historic uh, uh, events in Basque history is that the Vikings settled on the Adur River. The Adur River is the northern, traditionally, historically, the northern border of Basque country. It's in southern Spain. The mouth of it is Bayonne. And uh, the Vikings were the great shipbuilders. And the reason they were great shipbuilders is they figured out to overlay the planks in the, in the hull. And they had these very strong water-type hulls. And we assume that they taught the Basques, because after the Vikings went through the Alger River, uh, Basques started making their ships that way, and started, like the Vikings, traveling great distances, hmm. including to the uh, to North America. Yeah. Um, the, the Food, let's go back to food. Um, apparently the first Europeans, they were the first Europeans to eat corn and chili peppers. They were uh, the the first to uh, embrace Latin American products. Hmm. You know, they were very involved in Latin American trade. Uh, Turkey also, um, and they set up trading companies like the Compania Gripuscana de Caracas, the trading company between San Sebastian and uh, uh, Caracas, Venezuela. Hmm. Um, uh, they uh, learned a lot from uh, uh, the Mesoamerican people. You know, they not only did they eat corn and beans, but they grew them, and they grew it in the same way as the Mesoamericans did, in alternating rows, growing the beans and rows between the corn, uh, 
um, which is a very successful way of doing it. And beans have remained very important in Basque culture. Um, there's a bean off. <laughs> there's a for the best beans in uh, Tolosa, a town in Pitiscau, uh, uh, just uh, south of uh, San Sebastian. Um, a big deal every year who makes the, the best uh, beans. And peppers remain important, too, in this uh, uh, this. Uh, Peppers and Guernica that are uh, harvested green and uh, uh, others that are let to grow and they, they become red colored and then they're used in chorizo, so they're called charceros. Um, but the interesting thing about peppers is that, you know, they have this capucine, the stuff that makes them hot, mm-hmm. and it, it is uh, generated by sunlight. And Basque country, uh, relative to Latin America, is not that sunny. And so their peppers are not very hot. Oh. Uh, oh. Although they're the same species that are grown in, in Mexico and other places in Latin America. But, um, you know, you get them in European weather and they don't... I remember one year there was a there was a, a drought and a real heat spell in, in uh, uh, southern Europe. And uh, the peppers started getting hot, much spicier than they had been before, uh, which people didn't like. You know, Europeans aren't used to uh, that kind of spice and don't like it. <laughs> because of the, the sunlight. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Mark Kurlansky. He's author of uh, many books. Uh, the book we're talking about right now is The Basque History of the World. Uh, the, the game that we call Hailai was invented in Basque Country. Uh, t- tell yeah, me, tell me the history in, there. In Sempi, where they got the Basque woman. <laughs> um, and there are many, many variations on it, different types of paddles and scoops, but the most popular in Basque country is barehanded, uh, which is an extraordinary sport. They televise it there. It's, it's uh, you know, it, if you have those cestas, those, those big curved baskets, uh, the, the leverage does a lot to, uh, in speed, to increase the speed of the ball. But if you're just whacking it with your bare palm, it takes incredible strength to, you know, get a hard shot. Uh, so it's really a, a remarkable sport. And I understand that many towns have a, a big wall, right? And you got bleachers? Oh, almost every town in Basque Country, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's televised. Yeah, the barehanded one in particular yeah. is, is televised. It's, yeah, uh, extremely popular. Hmm. Um, it, apparently, the Basque invented beach resorts. Is this, this, this <laughs> what I'm, the one I'm reading? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, places like Biarritz. Um, first, they didn't invent beaches; just the, uh, yeah, right, the economic right. system of mm-hmm. <laughs> turning them into resorts. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Basque have always been a very commercially resourceful people. Um, I wonder, to get back a little bit to culture, have you talk a little bit more about that. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering why you titled the book The Basque History of the World. I think there's there's yeah. probably a couple of reasons there. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a joke. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Basque joke. Um uh, Basque laugh at the way they're so focused on themselves. Um, 
and uh, so there's there's lots of jokes uh, um, uh, about you know not imagining anything that isn't Basque. So uh, you know this is the history. It's the history of Basque, really, not the Basque history of the world, but. You know, to Basque, the history of Basque is the history of the world. <laughs> uh, you could probably say that about several peoples, you know, pretty self-absorbed, but I guess the, the Basque recognize that in themselves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they laugh about it all, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just so, you know, like sitting around with a Basque in, in, in Chicago, going to major league ball players to determine who was Basque. Mm-hmm. It's such a Basque exercise, you know? <laughs> oh yeah yeah i can just see that what, what uh, when when you go back to basque country or when you you know talk to basketball players or with anybody basque what what strikes you as, as being essentially basque i guess especially about the culture um well you know aside from the fact that they speak this weird language yeah yeah that's important uh, uh, you know, Basques have this very interesting view of the world where they're very rooted in their homeland, but also extremely outward looking. Um, so that they aren't, they aren't an insular people at all, in spite of the fact that they're totally focused on themselves. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that's striking about you know, sometimes when I'm in Basque country, I'll venture across the um, uh, the river on one side or the other into Spain or France, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's different. I mean, the Spanish and the French are so different from the Basque. And what it is is that the Basques aren't a Latin people. They don't have any of the Latin uh, characteristics. They're 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 not. Uh, you know, they're not people that take big siestas and, and, and time off in the middle of the day, and they're not. They're they're very focused on work, and they're um, uh, extremely uh, uh, focused, determined people in general. Not they they don't have that easygoing Latin thing at all. Hmm. Um, which isn't to say I mean they're they're very easy to get along with, but. Uh, um, you know, they're out there doing things. <laughs> they're very ambitious. And uh, so finally, this topic, you, you said that, uh, I guess because of this book, you're, uh, the Basque people will seek you out. I guess you're, you, you have opportunities yeah, to talk to know, Basque people a lot. Nice. Basque, Basque people come up and introduce themselves to me all the time, wherever I go. Yeah. There seem to be Basque people everywhere. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the new book, Paper, Paging Through History. Uh, the book we have been talking about is The Basque History of the World. It's a part of our series, Our Favorite Books. Mark Kurlansky is the author, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Paper, following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. One of the best skills a leader can develop is the ability to ask questions. Not questions with an implied solution, but neutral, non-judgmental questions that show respect for employee commitment. For example, why is that important? What would our customers think? Why are you committed to this course of action? How does that make you feel? 
There is no judgment in these questions, just honest curiosity that assumes the employee is committed and gives the employee respect. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. A 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu We're back with uh, Mark Kurlansky. He's author of uh, 29 books. Most recently, uh, is the, paper, the uh, uh, book is titled Paper, Paging Through History. Uh, Mark Kurlansky is a New York Times bestselling author of uh, Salt and uh, Cod. Um, and uh, so uh, let's uh, talk a bit about, about this book. One thing that struck me um, in the discussions of this book, uh, we talk a lot these days jump to this and then we can go back to some history. We talk a lot about going paperless. And uh, you push back on that in, in this book, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, having spent a few years sort of investigating this issue, it's very clear to me that uh, paperless isn't going to happen. Um, you know, that for a while there was all this talk about the paperless office and everybody forgot about the fact that all these computers that were supposed to make the office paperless were all connected to printers. And there was a while in publishing when people talked about the ebook taking over, and it's not taking over. It grew to a certain point and hasn't moved beyond that in, in years. Some people like ebooks and some people like hard books. Kids don't particularly like ebooks. And um, some people like ebooks for certain things, like when they're traveling and not for when they're at home, and for some books and not for other books. And it's the, one of the great. I, I learned a number of things about technology and society in doing this book. And one of the things I learned is that um, it's really kind of rare for a new technology to replace an old technology. What it usually does is offer an alternative, uh, which is why you see vinyl record sales going up and up. Yeah, that's true. You do. You go back to the old old technology. We have a, a real treat here. We have um, with us on the phone line uh, Professor Len Rosenband, professor of history at Utah State University. He's author of Papermaking in the 18th Century uh, France. Uh, professor uh, Rosenband oh. wanted, wanted to join us. Uh, professor, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I so believe I, I have read some of your excellent work. Well, thank you so much. And I know you've used uh, my larger study of the Montgolfier Mill in your book. Yes. So uh, I'm familiar with that. I guess um, I'm. I guess that my role is to ask some questions about uh, paper. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to uh, love to have you ask some questions. Uh, and I'd be delighted to do so. So um, I'm curious um, where you were going in terms of uh, the question of technology and how rare it is that it uh, is a thoroughgoing replacement. But, of course, in papermaking it is, isn't it? You know, you go from a handicraft that's more than a millennium old to a, a very industrial uh, technology in a very brief right. span. Right, and, and yet there's, there's still handmade paper. And, uh, you know, for certain people like artists, uh, there's a preference for, for handmade paper. And... Um, you know, we replaced uh, rag paper with wood paper, and of course, rag paper was actually better. So when 
people go to a quality station or for somebody for something special, they get you know hundred percent rag paper. Um, so you know these things hang on. Did you know that the British still uh, initially put out every new law they pass on parchment? Um, that I did not you know, know but I do know that an 18th century paper manufacturer named the Portals um, in Britain to this day uh, still have the right to manufacture the paper that it, uh, British currency is on. Um, and they got that right in the early 18th century. So there's a kind of... Yeah, and, and, and paper... You know, um, currency paper goes back to much older ideas about paper than what we use today. Because it was better, it was stronger. The reason I had asked the question I asked before is, the thing that strikes me about technological replacement in paper making is, of course, it's meant to undo, in many ways, uh, the powers that the journeyman had had, much more than simply to increase productivity. So it gives you a sense. Absolutely. I mean, Robert, who invented the first paper machine, you know, was very upfront about the fact that he was doing this to destroy the privileges of uh, paper makers who had a lot of privileges because they were highly skilled. Um, very much like Jacquard, who invented the loom that the, you know, the Luddites were all smashing in the beginning of the 19th century. Jacquard was doing that to destroy the privileges of the, uh, um, uh, weavers in, in so, British Midlands, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the weavers started smashing the looms, and you know, which is why a very important we, thing that Marx said. He said this was all a mistake. A lot of smashing the looms. If you if you you can't attack the technology, you have to attack the society. And I think there's something fundamental there that uh, people have this idea that technology. Uh, creates society and it makes changes in society. And society does these huge shifts because the technology was created. But it, it's really generally just the opposite. As technology uh, is facilitating changes that society has chosen to make. Or so in if this you don't case, like some computers, you got to do something about society. To, you know, or in to this case, the uh, this technology was not about advancing productivity in the conventional sense, but it was part of a reordering of society by those Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, in power who no longer and he was, he was to very be at the disposal of the skilled men. I mean, uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a basic truth there that people who are trying to do things in society look for technology to facilitate those things that they're, tr- that, that they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not we aren't reacting to technology technology is reacting to us I think I think that's so I'm also curious you know having read your account um, where you place um, paper making in the broader sweep of industrial history um, it rarely gets obviously the attention that textiles or iron uh, working or Coal mining uh, do, and I'm kind of curious um, how you see it and its place within the broader framework of industrial transformation. Do you think it's uh, a model for other things? Do you think it's um, just part of an ongoing set of shifts? Uh, where do you locate? No, I, it? I, I, I do think it's it's very much 
a model, and not just in the Industrial Revolution, but throughout history. Uh, it's a it's a model for you know the relationship of technology to uh, um, to, to society, and uh, um, of course, paper making um, was in the Industrial Revolution. Um, uh, because that's how society was changing. And if you look at that first um, paper-making machine by Robert, uh, it employs the two basic elements of the Industrial Revolution, a steam-powered engine and a conveyor belt. That it, or in this case, um, it also uh, mimics the skills precisely of the hand industry and even the giant machines now that are the size of a football field are still the embedded skills of the workers you know embedded now in a wire mesh um, but they're still in many ways uh, doing what they had done for more than a millennium just now at high speed and great scale uh, computer driven machines uh, are basically doing uh, what the Chinese were doing in the first century. They have a uh, diluted solution of fibers that gets poured over a screen that's shaken a little, and, uh, you know, then a, a film is formed, which is then dried a little and peeled off and dried more. It's, ex- it's exactly uh, the same thing, except that it's... Uh, There's one other thing that I was very curious to ask you about, and that is... Uh, you didn't spend much time in your book about all the diseases and ailments and all the rest that accompany the actual making of paper. Yeah, I think you know that uh, most workers were superannuated by the time they got to the age of 35. And uh, it was just a devastating way of working. Um, It took such a toll on the body, making 3,000 sheets by hand per day. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and so spending I'm kind of endless hours every um, day in cold water. If you also think that's part of a, a model for understanding uh, papermaking's place in uh, the broader history of craft and industry, the way in which it took such a toll um, on the bodies of those who labored within the trade. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it, it was a terrible job. It had always been a terrible job, but in the Industrial Revolution it got to be an even uh, worse job. Or even before the Industrial Revolution, really. You know, when um, demand for paper started going up uh, and production started increasing, uh, it was a terrible life and people didn't live very long. Uh, gentlemen, made, we, you know, re- relative to the, you know, the working class in general, they made pretty good money. Mm. You know, and they always had the idea that they were going to get out or buy their own mill or something, but very few people succeeded in that. Uh, gentlemen, we're, we're just about out of time. I, uh, Professor Rosenbaum, do you, do you have a, a, maybe a final question? Or a... I'm just, uh, I guess one last question then is, um, uh, how do you see um, the ways in which uh, paper now functions um, as, you know, an absolutely critical element of globalization? As you probably know, the Chinese are the great purchasers of, you know, American discarded papers and cardboard, and they remill them for use in in the manufacture of new paper. So do you think that paper will always be a glue, in a sense, in uh, as part of the world of international trade? The thing of China is kind of a 
It's a special thing, peculiar to China and a number of ways. I mean, it's not clear to people in the China industry, in the paper industry, why China wants to be the largest producer of paper, because they aren't, you know, what, what, what do you need for paper? You need pulp and you need energy, and they don't have much of either, um, which is why they're buying all this paper for recycling. Over half of the paper made in China is recycled paper, uh, mm-hmm. because they, they they don't have pulp. Um, you know, this is a this is sort of an aberration <laughs> in the world. Um, as we try to understand what China is doing, for some reason, they consider it to be very important to be the largest in everything these days. Well, uh, let's leave it there. Uh, we'll we'll be uh, speaking, no doubt, more about this. I think Professor Rosenbaum is working on a on another book, and uh, we're going to have him on on a future Great. occasion on on this book. Uh, so, Mark Kurlansky. Uh, uh, author of Paper Paging Through History is the latest one, and we've been talking for most of the hour about the Basque history of the world. Uh, Mark Gerlansky, thank you. Uh, thank you, and nice talking to you, Professor. Thank you. And uh, pleasure. We've been talking with Professor Len Rosenband, Professor of History, Utah State University, author of Paper Making in 18th Century France. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate that. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera, Musical Theater in Logan Annual Gala Dinner, followed by the opening night performance of Ragtime with full orchestra on July 9th. Details at utahfestival.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences.